Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and that'll be on page 1219. 1219. So we're in our sermon series, um, Faithfulness and Exile. And uh, if you're new amongst us, by way of reminder, we're unpacking the letter of one Peter. This is Peter writing to the Christians who would be in modern day Turkey as we know it today. And there would be Christians scattered across the land. They're exiles because the way of the land would have been very much different to the way of life that would be required of them. And this morning we um, are in chapter four. And the title of the sermon this morning is this, a community in exile, a Christian community in exile, and we're going to unpack some of the behaviors, key characteristics, and attitudes of what that might look like should we do that well together. Now, just uh, by way of of introduction, just to say at this point, Peter has unpacked a lot of themes that we're going to, he reminds us of again here in chapter four. So I've got a lot of tough subjects to contend with. So would you offer me some grace? We're not going to go into too much detail of each of those, because if you've been here over the past few months, we would have addressed those. But by way of reminder, we will touch upon them. Before we read the text together, let me uh, just start off by uh, saying Yule Brenner, you may or may not know the name, Yule Brenner. He was a strong and fit young man, and he was in a bar one day, approached by another strong and fit person, and this person provoked him, challenged him, and Yule Brenner responded very wimpishly almost like a coward. And Yul Brenner's friend noticed what was happening. He saw something in Yul that Yul didn't see in himself. So he thought, I'm not having any of this. So he marched him out of the bar into the toilet and he stared in front of the mirror. And he said, Yul, what do you see? And he goes, well, I see, you know, head down, you know, low on confidence. He goes, I'll tell you what I see, Yul. I see pride. Do you know where this is going? I see power. I see, and I won't finish the rest, because if you've seen the movie. Um, but he said, I'll tell you what I see. You'll look in the mirror. This is what I see. Yule goes one step further. He's so full of confidence. He walks back into the bar, walks up to the chap, and picks a fight with him, only to start a mass brawl. So the image can only go so far by way for us this morning. Let's all not tear into each other on the way out, please. But I think the text this morning forces us to do something very similar but hopefully with slightly different effects. It forces us to have a dialogue with certain things. So what I want us to do is look in the mirror this morning. Have a look, because we're going to have a dialogue this morning around three things, asking ourselves, does our life, does our community have these things? Does it demonstrate these things? And that's, first of all, a dialogue with with desire. We're to be a Christian community full of holiness. So this morning, we're going to look in the mirror and have a dialogue with our desires. The second thing is we're going to have a dialogue with dust because a Christian community is a community of love and is the love in our lives gathering dust on the shelves. And finally, we're going to have a dialogue with destiny because, folks, as we look in the mirror, we are to be a Christian community filled with power. Filled with power. So first of all, a dialogue, therefore, with desire. We are to be a Christian community of holiness. And in 1 Peter 4 verses 1 says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. So our first dialogue, looking in the mirror, is I'm going to talk with our desires. 
Peter starts off here with suffering. What a great place to start. And what's interesting here is that in this dialogue with desire, Peter doesn't talk about arming yourselves with the same experiences as Christ or the same behaviors as Christ. No, but with the same attitude. Only elsewhere, once elsewhere in the New Testament, do we have something similar to this in the book of Philippians. Does Paul say to the Philippians that um, you're to have the same mindset as Christ and goes on to talk about that Christ didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he lowered himself. So the first question as we're talking, having this dialogue, what is the, what is the connection between suffering and holiness? Is there a connection here with our attitudes and suffering and holiness? Is it not so much suffering that counts, but how we approach suffering? Is that the important thing Peter's talking about here? Or perhaps is it, is it even too bold or is it too strong to declare this morning that regardless of the suffering that you're going through, there is a greater purpose? And then, of course, we have the question here about, is Peter really saying if people have suffered, they are completely free of sin afterwards? Well, let's just kind of dialogue with these things a little bit. And to help us, I'm just going to pull on the weight or the thoughts of some other commentators. So firstly, Schreiner says of this text, it's really helpful, and I'll take a moment just to read it out. He says of 1 Peter, he who has suffered refers to believers, so those exiles, and relates back to the imperative to prepare themselves for suffering. Peter explained why they should prepare themselves to suffer, seeing the commitment to suffer as evidence that they have broken with a life of sin. The point is not that the believers who suffer have attained sinless perfection, as if they do not sin after suffering at all. It's not that. What Peter emphasized was that those who commit themselves to suffer, those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith, show that they have triumphed over sin. They have broken with sin because they have ceased to participate in the lawless activities of unbelievers and endured the criticisms that have come with such a decision. The commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life, a life that is not yet perfect, but is remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers in the Greco-Roman world. And so the first question of this and what Schreiner is telling us is that actually the exile, there is an element of suffering to the exile because the way that the exile conducts life is very different to the world around it. And so people will mock you, particularly if you've become a Christian later in life. So suddenly you had one way of living, you repented of sin and you turned and you changed and stopped acting and behaving in a different way, and you're in the same social settings and circles, those people are gonna suddenly go, hold on a moment, who's been brainwashed? What is going on? And you might experience mocking, elements of suffering, families shutting you out. And so I guess the first question for you as an exile is reflecting, have a dialogue in the mirror and going, is there any part of my life where I experience scorn and mockery because I just do things a little bit differently? Furthermore, on this point, as we know, the author Tim Keller, he writes some helpful stuff on suffering, and particularly he says this, suffering is at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is not only the way Christ became like and redeemed us, but it is 
one of the main ways we become like him and experience his redemption. And that means that our suffering, despite its painfulness, is also filled with purpose and usefulness. You see, how we approach suffering has a remarkable impact on the outcomes of that suffering. And the reason these commentators are writing in this way is because Peter just previously reflected on baptism. And so what he is saying here, and the theme is also picked up in Romans 6, that he who in baptism has shared with the sufferings and death of Christ is risen to new life. And so sin has no more dominion over that person. So the first thing here is that in a Christian community full of holiness is that if we experience suffering, it demonstrates in some way we have a life lived that is broken away from sin. It tells us that suffering is at the heart of the Christian faith and that despite its painfulness, it is also filled with purpose and usefulness and it also can be seen in some way paralleled with baptism in Christ. So let's just declare this. Look in the mirror like Yul Brenner. Someone's going, sin has no dominion over me anymore because of the sufferings of Christ. And how many times do we look in the mirror with our heads down going, I'm just so caught up in this, I don't know what to do. The power of Christ is something totally different. And that power leads us to a life filled with holiness. And then he goes on in verse 2 and says, okay, well, as a result... They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, and orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless and wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So this is talking about, as we're looking in the mirror and talking, having this dialogue with our desires, is how are we doing with our hedonistic lifestyle? Have you heard that term before? Hedonism is basically a life uh, filled with the pursuit of pleasure, but without any pain. And this is often a very tricky one, particularly with exiles rubbing necks with the wider world. Because you see, the wider world has an opinion of pleasure, like Hamlet did, of Denmark, There is nothing either good or bad, only your thinking makes it so. There is nothing either good or bad, but only your thinking makes it so. And so as a result, you become the ultimate authority of your life. Because if you declare it's good or you declare it's bad, well then that's okay because you're in control. So go and pursue pleasure and do it in such a way as to live out the 1990s Microsoft slogan. Where do you want to go today? Because that's the hedonistic lifestyle. When the the boom of the internet, Microsoft is saying, log online, you can go absolutely anywhere on one of our computers. Well, the hedonist says, actually, as I live my life with myself, primarily sitting as judge, ruler over what is good and bad, you know what, I'll go anywhere I like, thank you. And so as we look in the mirror, exile, and we have a dialogue with our desires, we cannot mix our metaphors. It's really really important because we cannot see sin or evil human desires or orgies carousing detestable idolatry we cannot see it as cake we've got to see it as cancer and there's a big difference cake love a bit of cake throw it on the shopping pile just in case midweek i get a bit peckish 
I know it's not good for me, but I know if I have two or three slices, if I do a 35-minute run the following day, it'll balance it out, right? Do we know that? Is, that? is it just me? But I know it's there, right? So I'll put it there. I'm upstairs. I know it's downstairs. So I can, you know, I'll open the fridge, have a look at it, turn it around. Have a, it's kind of playful, isn't it? Cake's a bit, oh, hello, la-di-da, right? But cancer isn't that at all, is it? You don't play with cancer. You chemo cancer. You kill it. You annihilate it. You make no provision for cancer in the body of a human being. So you go to chemo. I don't know any cancer sufferer that has gone to the doctor and said, oh, do you mind if I take a little bit of that home with me, please? I just want to put it in the fridge. Just a bit late. I might, you know, I, I really enjoyed that period of my life. I think I might want to have a play with it. I want to bring it out. No one has that approach to cancer. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But why do we have that approach to evil human desires? It's all right. I'll say sorry. It's okay. I'll balance it out. I'll give money to comic relief. We cannot, we cannot cross over the metaphors, folks. Sin is not cake. Sin is cancer. And we as exiles in this community can make no provision for the flesh. We have to chemo it out. Because, folks, we don't declare what is good or bad. That would make us gods with a small g, wouldn't it? But we believe in the Bible of a God with a capital G who declares what is good and bad. Not because he's a killjoy, but because he's the creator of all human beings. So wouldn't it be wise to trust the creator of what is good and what isn't for us? But also there is another part of this. As in exiles, we know this. We know this as exiles. We know this as we look in the mirror and talk to ourselves. We know this as we live in the world and talk to other people. A hedonistic lifestyle doesn't offer all the pleasures that it promises, does it? Folks, we know that's true. Your friends know that's true. I don't need to go into the stats about depression and, and uh, antidepressants and how the UK is in the top seven um, countries worldwide where antidepressants are prescribed. We know there is something fundamentally out of kilter. The pipes don't just quite line up. It's out of sync. Listen to Damien Hirst on the matter. Damien Hirst, you may or may not know of him, a famous artist was made famous in the early 1990s with his provocative images and artwork, was uh, seen as, um, um, by um, Charles Saatchi, the founder of Saatchi and Saatchi Marketing, one of the biggest marketing firms in the city. He, was, um, he came across Damien Hirst's work in the early 90s and decided he was going to throw loads of money at him to help him pursue his art career. And they said at the height of Damien Hirst's kind of work, he was earning £40 million a week. And uh, the same weekend that the Lehman Brothers collapsed in 2008, the Lehman Brothers Investment Bank in New York, Damien Hurst earned a whopping 200 million pounds in one weekend. Goodness gracious. But after years of silence, Damien Hurst did his first interview with the Sunday Times only two weeks ago because this whole hedonistic lifestyle caught up with him. <laughs> it's not quite as it seems, he was saying. The title of the article is Damien Hirst Tells of a Rude Awakening from a 40 Million Hedonistic Lifestyle Per Week. And uh, if you read between the lines of Hirst's interview, he isn't saying anything new. He's just repeating the words of the good old sage, yet when I surveyed all my hands had done and what, had, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained. 
under the sun. You see, and the problem with this hedonistic lifestyle is what it does is it commodifies everything. And folks, we cannot allow to living our lives as holy people, we cannot allow this commodification to come into our church mindset, our community here. And what is commodification? It is taking anything, including social aspects of life, and making it into a commodity, therefore ascribing it value, good value, high or low value. This is seen, an example of this might be the character of Will Radley in the book, The Radleys. I don't know if, one, if anyone's ever read that by Matt Haig. But Will Radley fell in love with his brother's fiance, Helen, and he wanted Helen so bad. So he pursued Helen. They had an adulterous affair and Helen became pregnant. And Will Radley no longer wanted Helen because Helen couldn't offer Will the lifestyle that he wanted, which was this crazy, wild lustful because the child was getting in the way. What had Will done? He commodified Helen. He didn't want Helen. He wanted Helen for what she could give him, the product. And as soon as the product was faulty, used by date, see you later. Folks, that is the problem with our world that we live in. Everything or everyone becomes commodified, but not so with the holy way of the exiled community. I love you for you. You should love me for me. Not because I can string some chords together on a guitar and I'm helpful for the membership, but actually because I love you and I'm glad you're here. That is the way of a holy community. And furthermore, and the final bit on this particular verse is that we're called to be a Christian community filled with holiness Because there's also one day, folks, we will have to give an account for all that we do. Verse 5 tells us this, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. I have met far too many people in different walks of life, particularly people in senior leadership. When they have accountability to nobody, they're often prone to wander into all sorts of errors. There is something that about accountability, or just on a human level, that keeps us honest, keeps us in check, and it is good. You see, for the hedonist, for the way of the world, however, you're accountable to yourself. It's good or bad if you declare it so. So you're prone to go all over, do whatever, commodify everything. It doesn't really matter. But for the exile community, we don't believe that, do we? Like a net that was to catch a swarm of the swallows over Studland Bay. So we believe in a judgment day where God will one day gather up all of our actions in a big net. And he will place them down on the ground. He'll open the net up and go, let's talk. What was that? What was that? That's an interesting one. You know. And so there's a sobriety there, isn't there, for the Christian going, one day... There will be a judgment day. Because all of life, like the doctrine of Karam Day teaches, that all of life, not some, 
Not 85% or 93.2, but all of life has lived before the face of God. And one day we will look at him face to face and we'll have a dialogue with our desires. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. Paul writes, the end is near. James writes, the end is near in James 5. And John writes, the end is near in 1 John and Revelation 1 and 3. The end is near, folks. Now, what does near mean? doesn't mean repent right now because you might not make it home on the way back. It's not quite that. We don't know. I mean, near time is relative, isn't it? A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. We don't know when the end is coming, but we know it is near. And with that in mind, we are to live in such a way to be a Christian community of holiness. So that's the first dialogue. Look in the mirror. Have a dialogue with desire. How are my desires doing? Are they in check? And the second dialogue we're going to have in the mirror this morning is a dialogue with dust. Because we're to be a Christian community full of love and other important values. But are we demonstrating that so, or is it collecting dust on the shelf? Let's go from verse 7, the second half. Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that ye may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. It's time for our second dialogue, a dialogue with dust. Now, what's important here is the first thing is that Peter says, be, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And that's important there that the exile community we are to, it's, a, it's, the, it's the language of sanity. That we are to have a sane and we are to have a balanced judgment of things. Almost like Jesus did in John chapter 12 when it said, Jesus, knowing where he was coming from, knowing where he was going, got up and washed the disciples' feet. It's a beautiful verse. There's that sense of eternal perspective that gave him the freedom to get on his knees and wash the disciples' feet. And so there's a sobriety, there's a saneness to the exiled community going, I know I've been created by God. I know I'm going to be with him for eternity. Therefore, today I can think about things slightly differently. And isn't that certainly helpful in the current uncertain climate? With this saneness, we are to, first of all, pray. Folks, exiled community, we cannot allow prayer to gather dust in the shelves of our life. We are to have the same attitude, Peter earlier tells us. We are to have a sober mind, and we are to pray. And there's an interesting cyclical thing, this, isn't it? And sometimes in life, you, you know, it's like a, a merry-go-round. My kid's on the playground. I'm throwing them around. And I go, how do I jump on? And you're kind of like, and you kind of go for it. Maybe, you know, a bit of thrill-seeker in you. Or some of you might just stop it and then walk on and then go, I don't know, maybe you're a bit more reserved. But it's the thing this with prayer, because we're to have the same attitude as Christ, right? Oh, sorry, uh, prayer aligns us to have the same attitude as Christ. And the more we pray, the more balanced we'll become. And the more balanced we are, the more we're going to pray. And so there's this cyclical thing that happens. And so often the advice is, if, you're, if prayer is gathering dust on the shelf of your life, how do I get on the merry-go-round, if you will? you just got to start by praying. Pray until you feel like praying. So is prayer gathering dust? Secondly, above all, Peter writes, love one another deeply because this covers a multitude of sins. Folks, we cannot have 
we dust gathering shell on the shelves of our lives in our exile community, can we? The, the language here, years of love, it's like a horse, um, a horse's muscles straining forward in a, in a kind of while it's running. This love is kind of a strenuous pursuit. It's a gritty, it's a resilient, it's a forward thinking and focused type of love. It isn't a passive, dear John letter or John Deere, whatever way it is, but it's a, it is an active thing. We are to love one another deeply because this covers a multitude. Now, what does that mean, does it cover a multitude? Well, there are three thoughts that are often related to this. It could be that our love can overlook many sins, and that um, is paralleled in Proverbs 10 about love covering many offenses. And there is something here, isn't there? If we love a person, it's easier to forgive them. It's easier to be patient with your own kids than other people's because we love them. And it's not that love is blind to other people's errors, but we love people despite them. So it could be that, that love covers or overlooks many sins. It could be that if we love others, God will overlook a multitude of sins in us, some commentators say. It's like meeting a person who has all kinds of faults, and they, and, but they know them. And so there are sympathetic people, there are loving people, they're empathetic. And so it's easy to warm to that person versus meeting someone who's very kind of legalistic and, you know, doesn't show any, you know, it's kind of hard to warm to those types of people, isn't it? And so perhaps with reverence, it could be the same here, that as God looks upon us as a community, you are loving and kind and generous to this and overlooking because we love our neighbors. Or it could be that God lovers covers, God's love covers a multitude of our sins. And this is a wonderful grace that despite being sinners on the cross, by his blood, he covers a multitude of our sins. And the truth is it could be all of those. Thirdly then, what about offering hospitality to one another? And what's really interesting here is that he says, without grumbling. So there's an assumption there. It's like listening to one end of a telephone call, isn't it? We don't know how the people, in, the people that Peter were writing to were responding. But if he's saying without grumbling, you can assume there might have been some sort of grumbling going on. Well, why is that? Well, folks, for the first 200 years, the church didn't meet in core buildings like we're doing now. The church met in homes. And being hospitable would have been very costly because you would have had all sorts of people in your home, people that perhaps don't smell like you or look like you or in the same social class as you, and they would be in your home. In the book um, Evangelism in Exile, um, he talks about a gentleman in the, in the hospitable south of America looking for a place to stay, and he knocked, and he looked very different to the local people. He knocked on the door, and for the love of all that is good, he couldn't get a place to stay because he looked different, he smelt different, he was just a little bit different. Until a small community living in a hut by a railway line led him in. They had no space, but they were just being hospitable. It was costly. And so there is a challenge here, he goes on to say in that book, that often as Christians, as exiles, we're too quick to invite people to church service before inviting them to our own homes. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I often wonder, why, Lord, why are so many people these days, why are people not flooding to you in repentance? You know, and all that's going on, what, what's not happening? And I don't know the reason why. But it got me challenged. The first thing that came to my mind was called, I call it, in, in South Africa, you have the big five. 
So the, what came to my mind was the big five, and then I changed it artistically to the, the challenge five. And I was standing outside my front door, and I've got three houses opposite me, and I've got one either side. And I said, have I eaten dinner? No, let's go one step back. Have I invited all of these people to my home at some stage for a coffee, for a drink, for a dinner? And I haven't. I haven't. Is there any wonder that my street is not hearing the gospel if the Christian that is on that street hasn't even invited or talked or connected with the people immediately around him to into their home? Now imagine if all of us is like that. You're probably like me, and it's probably true for all of us. We are to be hospitable without grumbling. It's going to be costly. There'll, people will come over while the kids are being put to bed. My youngest might stay up past her bedtime. She will be grumpy in the morning. But we are to do it without grumbling. We are to be hospitable. And then finally, we are to be stewards. We are to be good stewards. And stewardship isn't ownership. Stewardship is managing, looking after something that belongs to another. So we have Kevin, who is a steward at AFC Bournemouth, something along those lines. Now, if he was to walk around AFC Bournemouth like he owns the joint, you'd think he's mad. Telling the players what to do, putting Eddie Howe back in his place. No, he's there to steward and look after the facilities. And folks, we are to steward and look after the gifts that God has given us for the community to which he's called us to be in. And so my question to you is this. How are you doing with the stewardship of your gift? What is your gift? You've got something. You don't own it, so don't claim ownership over it. It's a gift that God has given to you. You're to cultivate it. You're to grow in it. But how are you doing with it? So that's the second dialogue, a dialogue with dust. Are any of those values gathering dust on the shelf of your life? And then finally then, and also by way of conclusion, it's about having a dialogue with destiny. In 1 Peter 4.11, he says, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, and to him be glory and power forever and ever. Two things here Peter talks about, speaking, perhaps preaching, serving, ministering. But we are to do so not from our own stores of strength, but by tapping into something greater. I was thinking about this this week, and on my way into work, I was listening to a song by an artist called J.P. Cooper. And in his song, Change, he says this, Broken bathroom mirror, I've not used it for a while. I've been avoiding my reflection. That's a symptom of denial. But I pulled back those curtains, and I let the sun in again. It's like I saw morning for the first time, and she welcomes me like a friend. And when you've spent so long hurting... You can forget to believe in grace. Too many conversations with my burdens got me crying out for change. And that really struck me. Because going back to the analogy here, you know, when we look in the mirror like Yul Brenner, we're not talking to ourselves. The great thing about the Christian community in exile is that we have someone over our shoulder. Every time our head goes down, every time we get discouraged, it's almost like we have Jesus behind us going, Son, daughter, proud of you. I love you. I care for you. You have my power. I've given you my grace. You have access to me. 
Like Moses on the mountain, when he asked God for help, God didn't give him a product, he gave him himself. He said, my presence will go with you. An exile community, we need to tap into this power that we have in Christ. Because this power literally exploded death into a million pieces. So when we look in the mirror this afternoon, and we have a dialogue with desires, have a dialogue with dust, and a dialogue with our destiny, why don't you picture you're not alone? You have a risen Savior very next to you. His presence is with you. And you'll say to him, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. I need to tap into your power. I need to tap into what you can give me. And ask him for that. And let him see him transform not only you, but transform our community. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that you've given us freedom to dialogue with such things. Lord, we don't want to be ashamed to call stuff out if we have our desires mixed up. But as your word says, if we walk stuff in the light, you're faithful and just to forgive those. So Lord, we want to pray that by your presence being amongst us this morning, like it was with Moses, that you would cause us to talk to you like a friend, to open up to you with stuff that's gathering dust. But also, Lord, that you'd help us by your Holy Spirit that's poured out on all of us to tap into or to continually remain plugged into this incredible source of power that we have in you. We ask this in in your name, Lord Jesus, because in our own names, in our own strength, we will only go like at an extra pace for a few miles and then we will tire again. But with you, we have something for eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.